As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally Football Show today. Midweek Champions League. City see off Sadsack Gladbach. Chelsea beat an Atletico side as likely to take shots as most COVID truthers. And with the last eight lineup all set, we look back on the midweek action and forward to a busy weekend. Quarterfinals of the FA Cup, West Ham Arsenal in the league. And ahead of two key matches in the relegation battle, we get a sample of the upbeat mood on Tyneside. All that plus goal of the season, stadiums named after journalists, and where were you when they played this game and more in this Toby Football Show in association with Paddy Power. All right, Thursday the 18th of March. Hello, listener. Today for you, a lineup torn from every listener's fever dreams, really. We've got Duncan Alexander with a brutal new haircut. Hi, Duncan. Hi, James. <laughs> All right. Uh, also, cuddly Michael Cox is with us. Brutal is harsh, I think. I think Cuddly is not much better. Yeah, right. yeah, I'd agree with that. Angry Jack Lang's also with us. Well, that's, uh, that's clearly not true. Well, although, Jack, I mean, you're usually a pretty calm guy, but you got pretty upset by something this week. We'll be touching on the reasons why later on, but it involves a very large football stadium. The interesting story, that actually. Well, well it's, it's the Maracanara, of course, as it is for now known. What got you angry this week, Michael? Um, nothing much. I had an anger-free week, I'm pleased to report. <laughs> Thanks, James. All right. I was angry. Were you? Why? I was angry with the old uh, Champions League schedulers who, who, who said, oh, last week, let's have Mbappe, Haaland, Messi and Ronaldo all in, in one week and next week will look after itself. And it didn't. It wasn't as good, was it? Are you suggesting this week was slightly underwhelming from a Champions League point of view? A little. All right, well, uh, Real Madrid and Chelsea certainly enjoyed it. They, along with Man City and Bayern, went through to join Dortmund, Porto, Paris Saint-Germain and Liverpool in the hat at the House of European Football in Neon, Switzerland, where at 11 o'clock UK time on Friday, they'll be drawn out into quarterfinals. Hmm. Pretty all-star lineup, And Porto representing the little guys. You've got three English clubs in there. Two Germans, one Spanish, one French, one Portuguese. No Italians for the third time in the last eight years. 
What what most impressed you, Michael? I know you you weren't particularly impressed, but was there something that stood out for you? Was it Real Madrid resuming normal service, Man City using Gladbach as training cones? How about Chelsea putting out the Liga leaders without conceding a single goal? No, I mean I thought I thought the round of action was fine. I just think with the second leg of this round of sixteen, you always end up with the better side, often having one away, and then they go home and and. Basically, there's no chance or very minimal chance of a turnaround when you look at the statistics over the years. But yeah, I thought Chelsea were the most impressive team by far uh, on this week's performance. I thought they were just tactically perfect. And I think I've shown a couple of different sides to their game um, against Atleti over the uh, over the two legs. So yeah, they'd be my big uh, winners of the week if I was Daniel Story, which right. I'm not. <laughs> no. OK, uh, Tuchel doing all the things you're not supposed to be able to do as a new manager coming in, as in picking up things midway through what's been probably the busiest season ever, not needing to bring in loads of new signings in order to make your football uh, appear on the field. And this is a Chelsea team that had gone out in the last four round of 16s as well. Yeah, which is quite a surprising run. I think Chelsea, one of those teams, you kind of, even when you know you don't know the results, you kind of think they, they do better than they have done recently. But, I mean, what Tuchel's done in a short space of time is incredible. I mean... You know, you say without new signings, but in some senses Chelsea were a, a kind of squad of new signings that hadn't really been gelled together. And and yet Kante was possibly the most impressive. You know, he's almost getting back to his Leicester and first season of Chelsea form. He won um, possession 13 times in that game, which is the most by Chelsea player since Kante did it against Barcelona uh, three years ago. So, you know, and Tuchel singled him out for praise after the game. And I think he was totally right to. It was a really great performance. What would be an average number for winning back possession? Well, for someone like Kante, probably, you know, eight, nine times in a game. So mm. it's not wildly above that. But it, he was just kind of everywhere. And even with the with the second goal, you know, he was still, you know, box to box. And, you know, mm. he's not, he's no spring chicken. Indeed not. Very impressive from uh, Chelsea. It's only the third time this century, by the way, that Atletico have been knocked out of a two-legged European tie without scoring. I wonder if you can name the other two teams to do it, actually. I know the last English team to do it were under the stewardship of Gary Megson, which is possibly, you know, I'm not sure he's a European tactician. But that, was that was Bolton in 2008. Mm. Yeah. Well, the other one was Real Madrid, but Bolton were very much the one that I, I felt might surprise you and certainly surprised me. Uh, Chelsea did have a little bit of luck in this one, that penalty that... As Pilaqueta uh, hauling down, oh, not sorry, not hauling down, but laying his hand on Carrasco in a suggestive fashion. Hmm. Yeah, I thought that was a a definite penalty. I didn't think there was any debate about it, and I think it should have been a red card as well because there was no attempt to play the ball. Um, but I think that's really the only respect in which Atleti can feel hard done by here because I thought they were just completely insipid. I mean, it, it's one thing playing kind of safety first, uh, aggressive football in the hope of stealing a goal late on. And that's a completely valid game plan, but you have to be so much more um, controlled and so much more, show so much more conviction than they did. I, th- I just thought they, they were really, really underwhelming. They have so many players in their squad that I don't really get. I mean, I, they have lots of players I admire, but players like, Koke, I don't really see what he does. They bring on Correa is a player who really, I, I'm really not sure what his best position is. And by the time 
Simeone had made all his subs. It was just a, a real mishmash of a team. They had centre midfielders in both wing-back slots, Thomas Lamar in central midfield with Angel Correa, basically, and and Koke. And yeah, I just I didn't think they offered anything at all and probably the worst I've seen them uh, in a number of years and really not a very good endorsement of La Liga that they're top. Mm. Although they're, they're kind of busy plummeting at the moment. I mean, they're still top, but their their lead is uh, dwindling away. Just two wins in their last eight in all competitions. I mean, their approach is it's the sort of approach that when it works, and it has worked in the last decade, you know, reaching some finals, but when it doesn't work, it, it soon becomes very, you know, very kind of heavy to deal with. They've scored 22 goals in their last 24 Champions League knockout games, which is one fewer than Ronaldo has in his last 24 knockout games. So... Mm. I mean, neither of those are in the quarterfinals, so who's to say which is the right approach? But I mean, Atletico fans must be getting a bit, you know, you know, Simeone is the best paid coach in the world and surely you want a bit more for that. Well, top of La Liga though. Anyway, Thomas Tuchel and Chelsea sail through to the quarterfinals and the draw on Friday where everyone's got their fingers crossed for them to get PSG because... That would be interesting. Also on Wednesday, Bayern Munich uh, with a 2-1 victory over Lazio make it 6-2 on aggregate. Michael? Yeah, I mean, obviously the, it was a classic Champions League second round tie and it was decided really in the first leg. I think there's a kind of similarity in a way between Lazio and Atalanta that at times they can be very exciting going forward, but they just, they really lack individual quality defensively. I think we saw that with Atalanta as well. There was a couple of incidents against Real Madrid where their defenders just couldn't cope one-on-one. And I mean, the mistakes we saw from Lazio in the first leg were just incredible. And I know, um, you know, the likes of you and James Horncastle are always, always keen to say Italian football isn't defensive anymore. But sometimes in these incidents, I just think, well, actually, I wouldn't mind a bit of the old Italian defensive quality because I think these right. sides were just probably playing too open for their defenders to be able to cope with the kind of amount of space they had to cover. Yeah, it's a curious thing how those Italian defenders have just vanished off the face of the planet. They just don't seem to exist anymore. Or those that, that there are are just old and creaky. What it was about the way footballers grew up, whether it was the, the oratory, the kind of religious school systems that a lot of them went through or used to do their Sunday football, I don't know. It's a it's a topic that, that, that bears some investigation. Mind you, they were up against the magnificent uh, Eric Maxim Chupamoting in this, who's continuing his... Uh, Incredible Champions League dominance. Finalist last year, quite possibly finalist again this year with Bayern. Have some of that, Stoke. Uh, on Tuesday, Real Atalanta. Well, you just mentioned Atalanta. Here they were, not posing Real Madrid any problems at all, really. Quite the opposite. Giving them quite a bit of help when the Sportiello decided that Luka Modric looked like a good bloke to pass the ball to. <laughs> It was such a frustrating tie, wasn't it? I thought Atalanta. I mean, I would, I would still say they have more co- cohesion, more organisation, more teamwork than Real Madrid. But the game just swung on two, or the tie, sorry, just swung on two massive moments. The red card in the in the first, uh, in the first game, the, the silly giveaway by Sportiello here, and even the uh, you know the penalty incident. Um, was it Toloi who made the foul on Vinicius? Mm, yeah. it, was just, it just seems like Atalanta got themselves in those kind of situations so often over the course of two legs against not a great Real Madrid side. I actually thought that incident was quite uh, interesting uh, because Toloi was insistent in pointing that the incident had occurred outside the box. 
uh, so as not to concede a penalty. But with the new kind of double jeopardy rules, sometimes that would have meant that it was a difference between a yellow card and a red card, wouldn't it? Because, um, yeah, if you... Would it? If you weren't going for the ball, it would. No, no, granted, if you weren't going for the ball, it's a slightly different uh, situation. I'm not sure whether he could have made a... A case that he was going for the ball, but sometimes, I mean, gesturing that you pointed outside would actually be the end of your game. So I thought that was quite yeah. a funny incident. Um, and also, it wasn't dissimilar to the incident, in, the penalty incident in the first leg, was it? Very similar situation for that. Mm. I also thought the referee's decision to blow up after exactly 45 minutes <sighs> was really harsh with yeah. Muriel through on goal. We've seen hmm. that a few times this season. It happened in Liverpool, Man United at Anfield as well. And it almost feels like at some sort of obscure refereeing conference, they've got a little bit of a challenge going. Like who can, who can blow the whistle in the, in the most dangerous, uh, you know, situation for a, for a team. So, mm. bit well, harsh. I might be the current leader there. Uh, nice free kick from Atalanta, but should we talk a little bit about Luka Modric, who set up the goal, which kind of broke the deadlock here? Thirty-five uh, years old, Jack. Yeah, fantastic. Um, a colleague of ours, Dermot Corrigan, wrote a nice piece on him this week. I chipped in because I had I had a little interview with Dario Serna, his former uh, Croatia colleague, for a number of years, and he was waxing lyrical about Modric, just saying that for all the for all the technique that you see every time he plays, it's it's in his head that he's a real. They called him a, a mental monster just because he, he says Modric just remains on an even keel no matter what is happening on the field. And yeah, just the extent to which Madrid are, are reliant on that midfield is is remarkable given given how long they've had to, to look for replacements. Obviously without without Casemiro here, but even even with Valverde coming in, the the cumulative experience of Kroos and Modric just spreads so much calm. And it means that you know, it, it means that Madrid can just about scrape by with, obviously, Benzema has become an, an amazingly complete forward. But him aside, it's just a rotating cast of, of attackers, really. Obviously, Hazard injured, but they might have Vinicius one week, Rodrigo another week, Asensio or Isco. Neither of these players really setting the world alight on any consistent basis. But, uh, yeah, knowing knowing the kind of stability they've got behind them and the reliableness of, of Modric, Cruz and, and Casemiro, uh, they get away with it. Would you want Real Madrid in the draw? Yes, desperately. <laughs> I don't think I don't think they're they're anything to be to be scared of really. I think their their weaknesses are are fairly palpable even you know, uh, I think a, a better team than Atalanta were this week. I know they were a shadow of their usual selves. They would have they would have got at uh, Lucas Vasquez a lot more. I thought that was probably the the final nail in Atalanta's coffin when Robin Hursens went off, and he is one of their best attacking outlets, really. And I thought that deprived them of the one kind of little bit of thrust down the flank. But mm. teams with decent wingers will be looking at Vasquez and then kind of licking their lips. And yeah, I don't think there's anything too much to be scared of. Okay, uh, the the one Atlanta goal coming from uh, that uh, free kick that I mentioned from Muriel. Tactically, is there what's the thinking behind the second wall that then races towards the first wall? Is it there to screen the set piece taker so the goalkeeper can't read their intentions, or is it to unnerve the wall? Or what's what's the notion behind that? I assumed it was uh, 50% screening the keeper so he can't see it and then making sure that you get uh, first to any rebound if it drops. Okay, you've but, already uh, got the, a, a couple of steps on the 
defensive yeah. wall. But Jack oh. is the de- Jack's the defensive wall expert, so uh, I'll leave it to him. This is Michael was wants me to write about the history of defensive walls, which I've, it sounds interesting. But I've got no idea how to do it. But on this occasion, it was one of those it was one of those odd ones in which it was cool and I liked to see it, but um, it was also the kind of free kick that it would have gone in without that i don't think it needed it It was it was such a you know it was an up up and over the wall and it didn't rely that much on distraction in the end like if 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 they'd have done that wall and he'd have gone low or kind of tried to whip it on the keeper's side it would have been more understandable but it was just a a regular really good free kick with a bit of extra funny stuff before it if if you were up against say david priest this would be a very effective free kick to take because he's famously a proponent of no defensive wall so that the keeper can see exactly what uh, the uh, set-piece taker is doing. But with that Atalanta's approach, ha! Uh, the evolution of the modern game, it's fascinating stuff. All right, well, Man City were also in action midweek. We'll talk about them next. Place your bets. Welcome to Pep Roulette. Ta! I'm feeling confident today, me. So your selection, sir? To start off from blue number nine and ten, 17 as well, just behind the front two. Good luck, sir. Blue number seven, unlucky sir. Sterling, he started last week. Predicting Pep's lineups can be tricky these days, but fortunately, with Paddy Power's Acker offer, if you don't get one leg of your four plus fold Acker right, we'll give you your money back as a free bet. Paddy Power. Max free bet ten pounds, mid on twenty five on each leg on an exclusive, exclude shop bets, excludes enhanced match odds, season season play eighteen plus. BeGambleAware.org. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Man City. They're going to be in action uh, at the weekend in the quarterfinals. But Duncan, first of all, a word about their performance against Borussia Mönchengladbach, or, or more than one, if you like. All done in 18 minutes and then what? A bit of a training exercise? Yeah, if you're going to go for one word... Um easy or accomplished it was just mm-hmm. very professional it's slightly concerning I think because the Champions League is looking so easy for City that I think you know we've been here before where it's all serene and then it could it could go wrong I think it sounds silly to sort of worry about the draw but I think the draw is is massive for City because I think if they get like Jack was saying a minute ago if they get Real Madrid I think they'll easily progress but I think if they get Chelsea or they get Liverpool or they get Bayern I think they might overthink it a bit and and it could, you know, they could go out again having not been the the worst team of the tie. But yeah, this match was I mean the most exciting thing for me was just seeing the Puskas arena again. I just it's just quite nice to see it every week at the moment, just quite comforting. I enjoyed uh, Phil Foden's no-look pass for the the second goal. That was nice. Yeah, it was brilliant. And you know, that's now over 100 goals for for City this season. Uh, Guardiola his teams have scored over 100 goals in every single season he's been a manager. So if you expect if you want to talk about expected goals, there's your there's your go-to. I mean, the first one was brilliant as well uh from De Bruyne. It was a good one mm. for my theory that is both nonsense and spot on that De Bruyne has the best weaker foot of any player who is 
not actually two-footed. Right. Uh, let's not talk about theories that are both nonsense and also spot on, otherwise Duncan will get <laughs> When upset. When you say not actually two-footed, that seems to me to suggest that you think someone can be like perfectly... Almost, almost son, son Greenwood, I'd say they are very close to being able to shoot equally with either foot. I think De Bruyne has a very obvious strong foot and a weaker foot, but I think his weaker foot is very good. What about Van Persie? No, he always described his right foot as his chocolate leg. Yeah, yeah, but he's the, he's the top scoring player in Premier League history with his weaker foot. Um, what? So- that's interesting because I was looking at some stats on this of the top Premier League scorers once and I was surprised to find Robbie Fowler was very high. And I, th- I think I think that uh, left-footed players are more one-footed than right-footed players because it's more obvious they have to get it on their left foot. It was actually that's not the case. So maybe that's true with Van Persie. I just think of him as one-footed, but you seem to be proving me wrong with stats, which is, of course, your job. I'm curious about the kind of etymology of chocolate foot, though, as... Um, I, so in this case, it would mean basically a less skillful foot appendage. Uh, I think it's a standard Dutch expression, uh, rather than something he made up himself. But mm. we'll have to consult Tom Williams, who uh, is the expert on all this. We'll make sure to do that. Good. Uh, oh, City are going to be back in action this weekend. As I mentioned, it's the FA Cup, the oldest national football competition in the world, is back. 763 clubs began their journey in this year's tournament. It's down to just eight. Crikey. They are Bournemouth and Southampton, who kick the weekend off 12.15 Saturday. Everton will then host Manchester City. Good luck with that. Saturday tea time. Before on Sunday, Chelsea entertain Sheffield United and Leicester get a visit from Man United. Now, two of those quarterfinal ties look quite straightforward and I'm looking at Everton, Man City and Chelsea, Sheffield United uh, the other two games are a little less clear Bournemouth Saints and Leicester, Man United what are your thoughts? Firstly it's the first time we've ever had three former finals in the quarterfinals so obviously Bournemouth, wow. Southampton hasn't been a final but the other three have all been FA Cup finals so that's, that's quite nice um, but obviously Bournemouth Southampton stands out because it's the locations of the quickest ever hat-trick in the Football League, Bournemouth, and the quickest <laughs> ever hat-trick in the Premier League at Southampton. And Pepper Pig World is kind of equidistant between the two spots. I don't know if that has any bearing on it. But um, yeah, that'll be an interesting one. OK. Um... <laughs> <laughs> so... Bournemouth are the only non-Premier League side left in the competition. Sheffield United, arguably. (laughs) Jack. Sorry. Said you were angry. There it is. Spitting venom. Uh, They've got a terrible record against Saints and they've got Jonathan Woodgate as manager and things haven't been going too well, sliding out of the playoff places. They did get a victory midweek against Swansea. Saints, though, do you expect their hideous slide in the Premier League to continue here? Yeah, no, I think Southampton are the favourites. Um, uh, they're a funny side, Southampton. I've said this before, I can never really work out why they play badly and why they play well, because they seem to kind of play the same system with the same players and the same ideas every week, and yet they they go on massive runs of good results and massive runs of poor results. So, yeah, I think they'll start as the favourite for this one. I'm never really sure whether this is a derby or not. I hmm. don't think it is technically, but I, I do think of any kind of South Coast towns or cities 
as being close enough to be derbies, which they're obviously not. Jack, Jack's the expert on this, isn't he? Pretty sure it's a West Midlands derby, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but they're very close, Bournemouth and Southampton. It's it's one of those derbies where I think Bournemouth fans see it as a derby and Southampton don't really. So it's Sort of like a Fulham-Chelsea, that kind of thing. That sort of vibe, or, or okay. Reading-Oxford or something. Right, OK. So Saints the favourite there. What about Leicester against Man United? I think that's quite... That seems like a, a coin toss one for me. Interesting was Ole Gunnar Solskjaer this week, kind of drawing more focus onto the league form. And he, he said that managers who focus on cups are focusing on, he called it ego things, which is a nice little phrase. And I wondered, you know, who he has in mind with that. Obviously, probably his his predecessor is, is one. Um, but I think now that they are fairly safe in the top four, I think they would be... I think they'd be very disappointed not to bring home at least one trophy, given the position they're in. Obviously, I think a lot will depend here on how things go against Milan, and that's that's after we record. Um, and yeah, I, I think he will be regretting already, no matter how it goes, the the missed opportunity of resting players in that second leg against against Real Sociedad, which is really the only kind of uh, gimme game they're likely to get for the next few weeks. Uh, Leicester obviously had the week off, kind of have started to adapt nicely to to their latest batch of injuries, kind of retooling with with Vardy and Iheanacho as a strike duo. I thought that looked very promising last weekend. And yeah, I think there's certainly, there's certainly goals in this one, I feel, and I, I really can't call it, I'm afraid. It's interesting because a few seasons ago, there were, when Ian Acho and Rashford both emerged, there was a bit of a, a bit of a debate about which one was the more impressive forward. And you know, I think Ian Acho's underlying numbers were were stronger than Rashford's, but it's more than fair to say Rashford has definitely kicked on and and been the better player. But as Jack says, uh, Ian Acho actually, you know, not just the recent games, he's he's looked pretty good. I think for most of the season. Um, and for Leicester, I think it's it's just their home form that's the the real issue for them. You know, they're on course to become the first team in top flight history to win more away games than home games in a season. Um, and obviously, this isn't the league, but United. I mean, we've seen some really great games between these two over the you know half, last half decade. So I think it'll be a good match. But you know, Leicester are the only team to be champions of England and, and not win the FA Cup. So I think. For Leicester, like winning the FA Cup would be massive because it's it's like the one thing they've they've never really done, um, and you know it would be good for Brendan Rodgers and and the town slash and city. for his ego especially. I'm really perplexed ego, by yeah. Solskjaer's <laughs> remarks that cups are for that. He's so public spirited that's why they go out in the semi finals the whole time, <laughs> presumably. Just quickly on Iheanacho, I really like him as a player. He's he's a, a kind of striker that I like who seems to me almost 80-90% of his skill set is striking the ball and I, I value that in a player but when I look at the celebrations after he's scored and he's scored quite a lot recently like the level of <laughs> his colleagues don't seem that pleased for him and I wonder if I don't know it's a very I would love to know the inside story of it but it's kind of yeah they give him a little pat on the back but it's oddly distant and he himself doesn't look kind of over the moon so I, I wonder with players if they go so long feeling they're underperforming or not where they want to be in their career that it takes, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten goals before they can actually start enjoying goals as a normal sensation again. One to watch this weekend, how much 
his actual teammates enjoy his goals with him. Like the way you can't eat loads after you've not eaten for ages, you have to sort of build up slowly. Yeah. Worth pointing out as well that this was uh, probably the biggest game of last season because these sides met on the final day to get that final Champions League place. Manchester United obviously won and got the Champions League place. But I thought Inacio was the best player on that day. I thought tactically he was really good and was linking play excellently. So, yeah, combination of that and, of course, the uh, the good form he's in, he's the player to watch. Well, Leicester haven't beaten Man United for six years now. The 2014-15 season. Maybe that could all change this weekend. Chelsea, meantime, taking on Sheffield United, Sunday lunchtime. Sheffield United coming off a 5-0 defeat against Leicester. Chelsea, of course, sailing through in the Champions League. That looks pretty straightforward, that one. What, though, of Saturday tea times fixture between Everton and Man City? Everton's current form, is it more or less underwhelming than their neighbours across Stanley Park? They've lost their last two matches, lost four of their last six at home, most recently 2-1 to Burnley. What do you think? It's more confusing, I'd say, because you can kind of work out why Liverpool have been inconsistent. Um, whereas Everton, you can sort of see why they lose games, but you can't really work out why they've played that way when they you know, functioned perfectly well the, the week before. So, yeah, I, it's a strange one. I think, obviously, the last the last round, there was obviously that incredible game, Everton beating Tottenham in extra time. And... Uh, you know, maybe that was a sign that this, you know, there's no science behind this, but maybe it was a sign that Everton have got some sort of cup fever this season. So I'm looking forward to this game, but I think we'll be able to tell after the first sort of 10 minutes whether which Everton have turned up. And if it is the not good Everton, then City should romp home comfortably. Hmm. I wonder whether their, their early season form uh, adjusted expectations unfairly, because if you look at their, their league position, I mean, they're still in touching distance of of the top four, just about. They're above Spurs, above Arsenal. Obviously, West Ham's success casts a bit of a shadow, but I think relative to to expectations prior to the season, I think they're probably on track or maybe even a little bit ahead. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe just the lesson is don't start the season too well. You know, start it, start it a bit slowly and then build up towards the end and fans generally will be a little bit happier. But I don't think there's too much to complain about for them. Okay. What about this game, though? What what way do you think that they might be able to exploit some weakness in this Man City side with its full-backs tucking in and its centre-forwards now taking the field and scoring goals? Well, uh, Fabian Delft will be able to give his uh, teammates some information on maybe how to exploit that, really. Um, right. I mean, the only th- City are obviously strong favourites. The only thing I'd say is I think some of the big sides are struggling a little bit when they come back from Champions League duty at the weekend because there's so much tiredness around this season. I think Guardiola will shuffle his pack. I mean, uh, he's he hasn't played Edison so far in the Cup. I mean, the games have been against Birmingham, Cheltenham and Swansea. So I think Zach Steffen will probably play. Uh, he looks perfectly competent, but I think Edison's actually had quietly quite a good season. Doesn't always have that much to do. So I think him not playing is um, might be a bit of a weakness for City. And the other thing is... I didn't think City were very good against Fulham last week with with Torres and Jesus and Aguero. And because I don't think those players played in midweek, could be wrong on that, uh, it feels like they might come back in. And if he uses that combination again, um, maybe Everton will have a little bit of a chance. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, those three are, are probably not in Guardiola's best 11 at the moment, which is funny considering they are the three players who are 
most like a, a proper forward. Well, Everton's best chance could be if Aguero does play and he continues to be annoyed at his teammates. Did you see this? That apparently he, during his very short cameo against Gladbach on Tuesday night, I think he only received three passes in 13 or 14 minutes. And there are reports that he was overheard saying to a, a member of the backroom staff, why aren't they passing to me? Uh, which seems a, a remarkable thing given his his standing in the team prior to this season. I mean, I'm sure there's there's nothing uh, purposeful in it, but if he feels that he's out of touch with the uh, rest of the team to the extent that he has to ask someone that, uh, yeah, a rare sign of, of discontent there from what presumably is otherwise a very happy squad. Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because you can be as great a footballer with a career like Aguero's, but yet sit around and watch everybody else do wondrous things and people eulogise them, you will start to feel a bit insecure about how much you actually bring to that particular table. It's going to be interesting to watch that as well this weekend. Jack, you, I know we're excited by Pep Guardiola coming on BT Sport to explain the tactics to the little folk. Uh, well, I, was... <laughs> I firstly enjoyed Gary Lineker speaking Spanish to him, which is quite partridge-y. Um, but yeah, I keep seeing this clip posted on Twitter about you know, Guardiola talking through the fullbacks moving inside. And I don't think he said anything that wasn't kind of glaringly obvious to most people. He said it's mainly about control, having more people in there who can who can pass it. Um, I suppose, yeah, he, he, he mentioned that that came into his thinking more in Germany because teams were were countering so well against Bayern and, and that didn't really happen to him in Spain. And then he gave... Uh, I, I enjoy it when someone with clearly such a, a mastery of the English language can still come up with just a bit of imagery that just completely baffled me. He said, in Spain, opponents would need three guns and a hundred bullets to lose one ball. Oh, is that what he said? Yeah. Okay. One of those guns is going to have 34 bullets and the other two have 33. wonder who gets the extra bullets. <laughs> yeah, I, I just didn't quite understand that. Maybe okay. that's just me. That's maybe you're not a kind of like universal. I'm, I'm not a Zen level right. football thinker. Okay. Well, Man City, you'd put them down as favourites for this one, would you? Yeah. Yep. Nods all round. Which game of the four, if you had to pick one, which game of the four would you watch, Michael? Um, I would go for Leicester, Manchester United, because I think it's the most evenly balanced game. And I think it's worth just pointing out this isn't really a response to your question. So apologies for this. But. I mean, the FA Cup, it's almost a little bit of luck that we've actually got through it. Because when you think mm. about at the moment, that you know, none of the sides below the fourth tier are able to play. So essentially, they were able to play during the period where the FA Cup needed those teams to go ahead. And I know there were exemptions for a couple of sides, you know, who were below that level and allowed to play. I think in the second round, Marine got through to the third round. But I mean, had things worked out slightly differently, I think we would have had to completely abandon the FA Cup. I don't think that was beyond the realms of possibility. So I'm just pleased that we've got to the quarterfinal stage. Yeah, nice one. Excellent. All right, then. Uh, well, that's your lineup. And uh, of course, you don't have to pick one. You can watch all of them because they're spread out nicely and interspersed with some very exciting Premier League fixtures, which, as I mentioned, could have a whopping bearing on events at either end of the table. We'll be talking up those next. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Lisa, where were you on the 18th of March, 2010? On this day, quite literally, but 11 years ago. Chances are you were down by the Thames with the number one sounds of tiny temper playing on your iPod shuffle. There was a game of football going on down in London SW6. Fulham, who got themselves into the Europa League by improbably finishing seventh the previous season, were now in the thick of a European campaign and reality was catching up with a bang. In the last 16, they were facing Juventus, who'd already spanked them 3-1 in Turin. Hmm, an away goal for Fulham, you're thinking. Yes, they did have one. But as the two teams lined up again on the 18th of March 2010, it was less than two minutes before Juve went and got one of their own. And the bottom corner of the net found by David Trezeguet. That's a hammer blow for Hodgson and Fulham. David Trezeguet making it 4-1 on aggregate. And it was now all over. Narrator's voice, it wasn't. Dempsey. Dempsey will try and chip one. Wonderful. Absolutely brilliant. A sensational goal from Clint Dempsey. May well have knocked Juventus out. Just one of the great Fulham moments. Oof. One of the greatest comebacks ever. No, this Fulham coming back from 4-1 down to win 5-4 on aggregate on their on their way to the final that year. It was that era. It wasn't too long after the Middlesbrough season where they, again, pulled mm. off incredible Massimo Macaroni-inspired comebacks. And, yeah, it was, uh, it was a, a great kind of run from Fulham. And that game particularly, you know, I watched the goals again this week and just the noise as the goals go in and, uh, you know, Clint Dempsey running to the crowd. Oh. and It's a different time in, in many, many ways. But it was, uh, yeah, brilliant game. But Bobby Zamora was unplayable that night, just he- bossing... Bossing Juventus. Yeah, he had a personal thing with uh, Fabio Cannavaro. I can't remember what the the basis. Maybe there was some words exchanged in Turin. I was I was at Craven Cottage actually for the game, and it, just the disbelief. Mm. That, yeah, of the of well, what the, was... also the the winning goal, the decisive goal, the the fourth was was a brilliant chip from from Clint Dempsey, sort of without without looking up really, and with bodies in between him and the goal, and yeah. It, it, brilliant goal and then obviously with a slightly sad ending given that he got was it semi-final he got dropped shortly before kickoff for Zamora and punched took his tendons out of his hand or something so did he I'd forgotten Mm. that is this Fulham's most famous goal ever the Clint Dempsey chip over the hapless Clemente Clemente I haven't heard that name probably since that night uh I think it possibly is their best goal yeah I mean that was a great run and uh I mean you mentioned Michael wrote about his favourite Fulham goal earlier this week, and it wasn't this. Really? When did you write that? Wrote no, but that was my favourite. You, you, you said famous goal. Right? Yeah, I think, but I think that one's more famous. Which one? I don't know. 
the Kasami go against against ah, Palace. Ah, yeah. I but, mean, that's, but but, but yeah. I mean, when when he says famous in this context, he doesn't mean like, you know, literally famous. He means like the the well, let's ask the most him. famous night in their history, kind of thing. You know. Yeah, I mean, just when you wrap everything up, it was a great goal in an extraordinary match and an incredible cup run. So, I mean, I think it ticks a lot of boxes, but that Kasami one, to be fair, is just... I mean, that goes beyond Fulham. That's kind of world heritage goal, that is. On a vaguely related note, I once... A couple of years ago, I said to Jack that I can remember where I was when I was watching pretty much any major football game in history. And he thought it was the maddest thing that anyone had ever said. I actually wasn't watching this, but I can remember what I was doing instead. What were you doing um, instead? I was just in a in a pub, in a pub called the Druid's Head. And uh, there was a bloke <laughs> at the, the other table who just uh, started... He must have been following on his phone or something and was just going mad at the Dempsey, uh, the Dempsey chip. And I realised I'd missed a real cracker. But I'd be interested to know from listeners genuinely whether anyone else... Because I don't think this is this weird if you're a football fan. If you watch a big game or a mm. momentous game, you can always remember who you're watching yeah. with, where you were. Was, was Jack thought I was you know, some kind of madman for saying this? I think we must have different definitions of momentous games because I can, I can probably remember five to ten, maybe or maybe 15 really important games where I was and who I was with, but... Ten. You can only remember ten games where you watched where, it. That's where mad. were you when when Aguero when Man City beat QPR? Um, I was I was listening to that on the radio actually. Where where were you though? Uh, in my kitchen in Kensal Green. Right. Okay. This was before I could afford Sky. But yeah. But I think Michael, when we had this conversation, it seemed to me that he could just pluck a kind of. B-ranking Premier League game from seven years ago out of his memory, and and he's nodding now. So you're changing the terms of this, really, aren't you? Because I can remember memorable ones, but like just Everton against Southampton in the 2012-13 season, no chance. Well, I mean that's stretching a bit, and usually, of course, you're watching it at home in in the place you're always watching it. But I mean, particularly at the moment, I, I, I reckon I reckon most of the listeners who are around, if I said, where were you watching? Uh, England, Colombia, a World Cup '98. I reckon ninety percent of people who watched it could tell me where they were and probably who they were watching it with. I can't remember. Jack can't remember. Duncan, oh, I can remember. Yeah, and I was watching it with a load of people um, who didn't really like football, and it really annoyed me at the time. So I had to leave. <laughs> I had to leave the second half for a bit because they were making ridiculous comments, like you know, just nonsense about. Darren Anderton, always, oh, always injured. No, he's not. He played 38 games a few seasons ago. Had to walk out. So, yeah. No, Michael's right. That must have been the same night as the Romania haircut game, I think, as well, wasn't it? Must mm. have been having it at the same time. So they probably would have enjoyed that. Yeah, fun content. Awful people. <laughs> Fulham, anyway, just to wrap up their season, they went on to beat Wolfsburg and then Hamburg to reach the final, which was in Hamburg that year, where they got beaten 2-1 by Atletico Madrid. But Fulham, in a European final, it actually happened. Just um, one last thing on, yep. on that game. Fabio yep. Cannavaro's red card is, is great because it, he reacted like every sort of superstar Italian defender should do in that situation. He, he didn't look annoyed. It was a harsh red, I think, professional foul, but yeah. 
had players covering. He just sort of laughed and just trudged off. It was like, I'm too good for this, which, you know, I like that. He, I, I'm not sure how he felt about that Juve team. It was a bizarre interim period. It was before the Agnelli's kind of got their hands back on the club in terms of running it day to day. And when you look at the lineup, it's, I mean, it's not just Comenti that you won't have thought about for a while. Uh, Felipe Melo, Camaranesi, uh, Diego was in there as well. Uh, that David was that was a really really bad era of Juve, wasn't it? Mm. I remember watching a game once when they had a midfield three of uh, Paulson, Sissoko, and Melo, which is just the, that's just the same player three times, as far as I'm concerned. Right. <laughs> Manager was uh, Alberto Zaccaroni as well. Anyway, uh, Fulham that day with Mark Schwartzer, Brett Hangeland, uh, Zoltan Guerra, Damien Duff, and Bobby Zamora, as well as Clint Dempsey, and uh, of course the great Roy Hodgson directing proceedings from the sidelines. Can I just point out one final stat, which is that uh, Atleti got to that final by winning only two of their 12 European games that season, which I just think is a remarkable thing. And perhaps what Diego Simeone was trying to replicate this week. Mm. Similar to PSV when they won the European Cup in the 80s. I think they didn't win a game from the quarterfinals onwards, including the final. So impressive. (laughs) Incredible. All right, then back to the Premier League next. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Yep, 11 years on, Fulham have come a long way from those glory nights. They're in a bitter relegation battle. And this weekend, they're going to be looking to make up ground on Brighton and Newcastle, who face each other. Fulham currently are two points behind the Magpies and three behind the Seagulls, both of whom have a game in hand on the Cottagers. While Newcastle visit Brighton, Fulham will be playing Leeds. I'm not thinking there's going to be a lot of goals in either of those games. Is that fair? Duncan, what do the statistics tell us? It's probably fair. I think um, I think under the radar, Ariola's been one of the best goalkeepers in the Premier League this season. Um, based on sort of expected goals prevented, he's the, he's the best keeper in the division. He's stopped about 6.5 goals, additional goals, compared to the average goalkeeper. Um, so I think that's been one of the reasons why Fulham have tightened up. And yeah, I'm sure, given the way Leeds will inevitably set out, that Scott Parker will try and you know contain them and then uh, beat them. But obviously, at this stage of the season... It's a really, really big pivotal weekend, I think, in the relegation battle because, as you say, with with Brighton and Newcastle playing, depending on what happens there, Fulham have got a real chance to kind of properly, uh, you know, stake their claim to to survive. Mm. Newcastle two points clear, as a mention of Fulham, and yet they do seem to be most people's picks to go down at the end of the season after what's been a long and increasingly bitter season on Tyneside. Manager falling out with players, big injuries, all that kind of thing. What's the mood? right now on Tyneside going into this weekend. Let's find out from the Athletics Newcastle correspondent, George Corkin. George, thank you so much for joining us ahead of a mighty weekend. What's the mood like on Tyneside? Oh, delirious, deliriously upbeat. I mean, you say it's a mighty weekend, and I suppose it is, but it's one of those kind of horrible, terrible, tiny, pathetic weekends really isn't it I mean it's Brighton Newcastle it's whatever they are 16th 17th and um, 
it's pretty miserable. So it's yeah, it's big in its smallness or small in its bigness. I don't know. One of, one of the two. Mm. There have been moments of optimism uh, this season, possibly only for people many miles away from Newcastle. At the start of the season, it seemed like there'd been one or two astute signings. The arrival of Graham Jones a month or two back, which seemed to lead to a new attacking approach from the club. Uh, but right now, w- w- how low is the club? Yeah, I'd very much dispute the word optimism. Um, I think uh, what they did in the summer felt sensible and I mean maybe maybe that's where the kind of optimism comes from as you say I mean it you know the 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 phrase that Steve Bruce used was no risks and for Mike Ashley's Newcastle that is kind of quite remarkable so in terms of the people they brought in like Callum Wilson and Ryan Fraser Jeff Hendrick and uh, uh, Jamal Lewis felt like you know players players who knew about the Premier League wouldn't need time to adapt Certainly in the case of Callum Wilson, that's proved to be the case, although, he's, of course, he's injured at the moment. But it hasn't panned out, you know, it hasn't kind of panned out that way. I mean, his thinking was was very much, you know, here we are in the middle of a pandemic, all bets are off, that kind of stuff. Um, so we need to, you know, we need to be careful. But, um, you know, Newcastle, as per usual, have kind of found their way towards jeopardy anyway. The um, mood amongst the players, or at least between the players and the manager, doesn't seem to be that great. How representative of the squad's feeling about Bruce is that big bust-up recently with uh, Matt Ritchie? Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to tell with these kind of things. I mean, you know, Bruce's response to that was that this is the kind of stuff that happens up and down the country all the time. I mean, to a certain extent, it's true. I mean, I've seen that with my own eyes in training grounds before. And, you know, I think it's fine when when things are okay and the teams are winning and you can you can sort of laugh that laugh that off there's a slight difference though when the player you know allegedly calls his manager a coward and says that he's done f all for him um and it's the same player who you know was was kind of a true believer really uh in terms of Bruce at the start was very defensive um about him when he when he replaced Rafa Benitez and and was you know played a part in him getting a new contract all that kind of stuff so it's not good optics to use that phrase you know if nothing else and certainly when you ask questions uh, you know to people around the fringes of the club about how they're feeling and and all that and it's 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 pretty negative i mean i do th- i do think that there's you always have to put that in context and say that if you I think I think it's always possible to say that a dressing room is split because you've always got people who are unhappy about not being in the team. So they tend to think the manager's a dickhead and the people in the team tend to quite like the manager. So I think that's always going on. But when you're losing games, you know, a manager a manager has to provide players with something to buy into and when they get results that's that's fair enough but at the moment Newcastle are losing I and mean, it's an appalling run that they're on at the moment mm. and so there are a lot of very disgruntled people at the moment although uh, what could prove a very important point last weekend against Villa uh, not sure if what your feeling is whether you think Newcastle are going to go down this time but how how big a disaster would that be financially for the club I don't know how, where they are in terms of relegation clauses and stuff but also for the supporters is there a sense that, I don't know, when you look at the experience that, say, Sunderland have had, and it has been a pretty disastrous descent they've done down to League One, but they are actually at least winning games now and having a good time down there. 
Uh, well, I mean, possibly now. I mean, I think, I think, I think when Sunderland went down, there was that theory of you know on loan to League One for one season, and um, yeah, and it it felt like a pretty positive season until the end when they didn't go up. At which point, it became a disaster. And you know, here they are. This is now their you know third season in the in in League One, and things possibly turning around for them. But um, again, I think it would be wrong to kind of characterise them as a as a sort of happy ship. Um, no, for sure. But say, for example, you go down to the Championship and get rid of Mike Ashley and get the manager in that the, the fans want. Would that be the kind of exchange that people oh, would actually... Oh, sure. I'd snap your hand off for that, yeah. But, I mean, the thing is, Newcastle is such a bonkers club. I mean, y- y- you always have to sort of look at it and sort of ask ask the opposite question that you would normally ask. So, in other words, we're looking at the situation now. It's a disastrous run. It's two wins since December in all competitions. And they're playing, you know, they've been playing dreadful football for a year and a half. There's huge dissatisfaction. 10,000 season ticket holders walked away last season. Um, so, you've got all this kind of stuff going on in the in, in the in the background, the th- the thing is though, you would normally say about a, a club who have twice changed managers towards the end of the season. First with ben- yeah, first with Shearer, then with Benitez, and say okay, well maybe they maybe they think that they should do it a bit earlier next time. I don't think that at all. I think Newcastle probably think well we've tried this twice and it hasn't worked, so this time we stick with the manager. And the same thing about going down. You know, twice they've gone down, twice they've come back up as champions and I reckon that Mike Ashley looks at that and thinks do you know what I've got relegation cracked I know what we do if we go down but you know I I think the way Newcastle fans look at it there is much more fatalism around the place there is that sense that if they go down this time it'll be a real struggle to to go back up that almost that sort of Ashley has glossed over the difficulties um, around the club when they went down the two previous times yes in retrospect, it feels like it was a procession back up, but it wasn't. It, it was hard work both times, and I'm not sure that they appreciate that. Mm. Are they going down, George? I mean, I haven't been po- I haven't been optimistic about Newcastle since 1996. So my answer, of course, is yes. But they have found a way of kind of getting results when they really, really need them. Although that's you know that that has dried up this this year. It's a real worry with no Wilson, no no Almiron, no Saint Maximan. They've got no creativity and they've got nobody to score goals. So I don't feel I don't feel very happy about it. And yeah, I suppose if I had to put money on it, I would say yes, they're going down. Mm. All right. Well, they are still two points clear of Fulham with a game in hand. So yeah, fingers crossed from from their point of view. George, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to bring that little spark of of uplift to the show. George Culkin of The Athletic. Well, it's a big game, as is Fulham's clash with Leeds, because, say, Leeds, you know, do a number on the cottages. Remember, this game finished 4-3 to Marcelo Bielsa's side back in September when they met. Uh, then, you know, maybe the Magpies are going to be fine. Anyway, we'll see what happens with that this weekend. But also two other games taking place. There's the Tim Sherwood derby, the Gilet Classico, can we call it that? Aston Villa v Spurs. And perhaps even more excitingly, West Ham Arsenal, which sounds like a real cracker. Yeah, I think it could be quite interesting. I mean, West Ham obviously have been going very well so far this season. The problem is Moyes' approach against... Is it good clubs or big clubs? Because I think that's the issue here. If he if he considers Arsenal a big club, then he'll be very defensive. Um, but they're not a particularly good. Obviously, they're below 
West Ham in the table. I find this interesting about Moyes because I think it's often too easy for us to say managers of, of underdogs should be more bold when they're playing big sides. I just think it's easy to say. I think there's a, a reason why they don't play like that. But the thing is with Moyes, he's always defensive against the big clubs. But his record isn't any good against them. You know, it's not like it's Hodgson or Allardyce or Tony Pulis back in the day who had a reputation for causing these big upsets. He's played the same way going up against Arsenal, Manchester United and Chelsea, Manchester City for years. And his record is really bad. So I just wish sometimes West Ham would open up a bit because they're a decent side this year. And I, I just think the way that they approach some games, I thought Manchester United last weekend, they were far too negative, far too defensive. There's there's weaknesses you can exploit in that Manchester United defence and they didn't really do enough. So I'm interested to see how this one goes. Yeah. Mm. Do you think Sue Fowler is going to be in for a, a busy afternoon? Presumably it's going to be that Tierney and Smith Rowe ah, and okay. again and again and again. Yeah, potentially, and maybe Bamiang as well. I mean, that's another interesting storyline, whether he comes back into the side. Mm. Um, they've obviously got a Europa game tonight uh, before we're recording. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see whether he comes back. Because I thought Lacazette, much as he missed chances quite badly last weekend, I thought actually his positioning and his movement and his link play was quite useful in dragging Tottenham around. So that could be a big decision, especially as West Ham sit deep. So maybe Bamiang not necessarily the best player to play against them. So yeah, keep an eye on that as well. All right. I'm curious, though, that you call West Ham the underdogs in, in, in this because they are actually fifth just behind Chelsea, whereas well, Arsenal are all the way down in 10th. I mean, that's entirely my point. I think Moyes will set them up as underdogs, even though oh, they're right. the better team. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree with Michael. And um, I think, actually, Jesse Lingard is quite key because I think he brings a bit of kind of effervescence, a bit of big club kind of attitude. And West Ham have, obviously, he couldn't play last week against United, but they have looked a bit more adventurous, a bit more, you know, attacking with, with Lingard in the team. So I think him coming back, and he's obviously got a really good record against Arsenal in the Premier League. Has um, he? He's a bit of a th- yeah, he scored four goals in seven starts against Arsenal in all competitions. Oh. So he's a bit bit of a thorn. So I think he probably is the, the key player and he should be nice and rested as well after last week. Fair enough. Plenty of great history between these two sides. Their last home win against Arsenal at Upton Park was in 2006 when, do you remember, Arsene Wenger and Alan Pardew got into a, a touchline scuffle after Marlon Harewood's late winner. Yep, I remember where I watched it as well. <laughs> <laughs> do you actually? Yeah, it was, it was in a, a common room at university. Oh, OK. What about, oh, here's a good one. What about 2016, the 8th of April? When, uh, which was actually their last meeting at Upton Park when the game finished 3-3. Where were you watching and what was significant about the game, Michael? I must admit, I don't remember that When I game. tell you that Andy Carroll scored a hat-trick in about eight minutes. I was there. I do remember the game. I was at Upton Park. <laughs> Brilliant. There you go. <laughs> yeah. All right. Where are you going to be watching this weekend? Uh, my house where I've been right. solidly for a year. Okay, then. <laughs> Interesting reunion, of course, uh, this weekend for Mikel Arteta with David Moyes. In so many ways, his father figure in English football brought him to Everton and he's remained in the English game ever since. For That's going to be a trip. I think it's going to be a good game. As long as, fingers crossed, West Ham come out to play and a little bit of that Lingard, that J-Ling sparkle. It's a very difficult weekend, I find, this weekend to mm. kind of enjoy because you've got four FA Cup games and then Premier League games and... I don't know, it's quite hard to 
does anyone else find this that you, you kind of yeah, you don't yeah. know what to focus on it feels a little bit un, mm, unsatisfying somehow you want you want some kind of tactical plan don't you they're, they're, mm. they're sending us out with no instructions and just asking us to do our own thing i want I want some structure i want some position would you rather discipline. have say for example all the fa cups on saturday and then the premier league on sunday mm. and then you know yeah. where you stand perfect right yeah that's one to keep in mind football authorities Oh, by the way, just on the subject of Aston Villa Spurs, a word that Jack Grealish might be returning finally uh, for the villains in that game. Very good. Now, still to come, uh, we've got some fascinating headlines, and I mean fascinating headlines, from around the world and Jack Lang getting angry. First, though, let's get some odds from Carl Monaghan from Paddy Power. Thank you, James, and hello again, listeners. If you got on Jota and Gundogan to score in midweek, give yourself a pat on the back, but enough of my trumpet playing. We start off with Saturday night's relegation six-pointer between Brighton and Newcastle. The hosts, who are known for creating chances that usually lead to nothing, managed to convert their XG into real-life goals last weekend with a confidence-boosting 2-1 win over Southampton. But down the bottom, there is no time to rest on one's laurels. And remember, listeners, Brighton could be level with Fulham on points come Saturday. So with Newcastle atrocious on their travels since December, having lost seven of their last nine, one would have to side with Graham Potter's Seagulls, surely. Brighton are the odds-on favourites at 8-13. to Now, West Ham take on Arsenal Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock, and Arsenal left the Emirates last weekend with the three points and the North London bragging rights in their back pocket. But it's a result that won't scare West Ham. David Moyes' top four chasing Irons life fifth in the table and only had themselves and their manager to blame when they left Old Trafford last weekend with their tail between their legs. More ambition and more intent in the final third is sure to be on the agenda this week, and that makes West Ham at 7-4. A very attractive proposition, considering Arsenal lie 10th on the away side of the Premier League table. If you are looking for a goal scorer, though, Thomas Suchek anytime at 7-2 looks a fair price for the prolific Czech goal getter. Aston Villa take on Spurs at 7.30 Sunday. Unlikely to see any Rabonas in this one, folks, as the sublime to ridiculous Eric Lamella is suspended. The Spurs attack is also blunted by the thigh injury to Hung Min Son. It's been a busy week for Jose's troops with derbies and flights to Zagreb. On the home side, they've had their feet up since last Friday. They're likely to be boosted also by the return of their talisman, Jack Grealish, from injury. Is there a bit of value about Aston Villa this weekend? There may well be, folks, at 2-1. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. You can sign up for a subscription with The Athletic, listener. For unrivaled coverage on the business end of the season, you get all the articles, all the podcasts and free and Q&As with writers all for just £4 a month. To make use of this incredible deal, head to theathletic.com slash totally. Now... Jack Lang's anger is uh, imminent. Let's just wrap up one or two of the other headlines. Goal of the season for the world of football was wrapped up on Tuesday in Serie B in Italy by Michele Castagnetti's incredible 60-metre lob. Did you see this? You must have seen this. You haven't seen this. Okay, so Cremonese are playing Virtus Intella and the Virtus keeper basically just hoofs the ball upfield in classic second division fashion. Castagnetti is standing, yes, five, ten metres inside his own half. Dejan Stankovic is it back all the way, volleyed it straight all the way back in into the uh, Intella net. Incredible. He's actually done this before. Wasn't quite as far the last one. This was a year ago against Forozinoni. 
But um, this is extraordinary. Uh, seek it out. Seek it out. Also this week, former Brighton striker Mahita Molango is set to replace Gordon Taylor as chief executive of the Professional Footballers Association. I feel like we should have that music. You know, at the end of Star Wars, when the Ewoks have won, that music should be playing. It's an interesting choice, this one, Michael. Yeah, it is. It's someone outside the box. And I think it's um, maybe it's interesting that he has experience of lower league football. I mean, even I think beneath the ranks of professional football, he played in the seventh year, I think I'm right in saying. Um, and, and has obviously had a very successful career after that. And I think actually we hear a lot about the PFA when it's kind of scandals, when it's big names and that kind of thing. But I think a lot of their work really is is, is the lower leagues and is helping players at that kind of level. So in that sense, I find it interesting. I must admit, I didn't didn't know anything about the guy. Um, our Brighton correspondent, uh, Andy Naylor, remembers him playing five games for Brighton about 20 years ago. So well done to him for that memory. Um, but yeah, interesting choice and, and a big a big job ahead. I think one thing it's got to be about is it's got to be less about the individual. We hear so, we hear, heard so much about Gordon Taylor, Gordon Taylor for 20 years, but the PFA actually do a lot of good things. Um, so it'd be nice to hear more about the organisation as a whole rather than the head of it. More than 20 years, in fact. He, he became chief exec in 1981, which is an extraordinarily long run. I mean, I remember seeing him on, as a kid on Saint and Greavesy being interviewed in the same role he's been in until now. So, yeah, I think he was just say, a kid. I'm joking, of course. Right. 40 years in the job for Gordon Taylor. Um, speaking of longevity, how about Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who's just come out of international retirement after five years away and has been called up by a grateful nation for Sweden's World Cup qualifier against Georgia. Ibra is 39 years old and could potentially feature in the Euros this summer. I always wonder about what other players feel about this. I suppose it's more when, when you, you announce you're coming out of retirement after the qualifying's done, like thanks a Yahoo. But anyway, nice to see him involved if he makes it to the Euros. Uh, in other news, 25 professional clubs in Belgium have voted in favour of establishing the Beneliga, i.e. a merger with the Dutch Eredivisie, which is exciting news. Until we get the Eredivisie's response, it's a little bit like me voting to merge with um, Olga Kurielenko, for example. I think it would be tremendous if, if uh, I mean, I'm Probably it's trampling on kind of a century of Eredivisie history, but it does sound exciting to those with a passing interest, the notion of a combined Jupiler League, or whatever the Belgian League's called, and, and Eredivisie. Michael, you're nodding. I, th- I think it could be the future for some of these leagues. I, I just don't think... I mean, even the Eredivisie clubs have really struggled to compete at Champions League level. I do think there is a potential that rather than a Super League as as we've thought about it for the last 20 years, actually some of the smaller nations could merge because there is some massive inequality within within those individual leagues as well. So, yeah, personally, I think the current league system we have around Europe is a little bit broken for a couple of reasons and don't think this is a crazy idea to try and solve it. No, get League 1 in there as well. Mm. Yeah. We'll talk about that more, uh, no doubt, next Tuesday in the European show. And what's this? Legislators in Rio de Janeiro are voting to change the name of the Maracanã to the Hey Pele. What the hell? Jack Lang. I wrote about this this week on The Athletic. I'll just say that at the outset in case I forget. Uh, So this will just be a small intro to that. But it's the kind of thing that I thought it was worth writing about because on paper, I think a lot of people would read this and think, oh, that's, that's a nice touch. 
but I, I actually think it's quite disappointing and uh, kind of emblematic of a wider erosion of history really like for one thing this isn't no one is thinking that the, the name Maracana is going to disappear that's just a nickname and I think uh, it will continue to be called that forever really as long as it is standing it, it's the it's the official name on paper and you know above the above the archways that's being changed uh, and and you know no one in Brazil is anti-Pele but he has already got a stadium named after him uh, in the north of Brazil but mainly it's because the current name is the Estadio Jornalista Mario Filho which is uh, a rare stadium in the world named after a journalist and a journalist who was so influential in the growth of uh, football in Rio particularly uh, in kind of broader society as well but particularly in the in the construction and location of the Maracanã he was someone who campaigned for it to be uh, bang in the centre of the city, near uh, working class neighbourhoods, near factories, whereas other people wanted to put it slightly in a slightly more kind of touristy and or uh, middle class area of the city. So yeah, someone who kind of really shaped what what Rio is, what Rio football is. And yeah, to take his name off it has caused a real outcry in Brazil. So I thought it was worth uh, writing about that and kind of really digging into the reasons why. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really interesting article, actually, not least because of the, the story of Mario, Mario Filio himself. Also from Pele's point of view, God, I'd be worried if, if somebody suddenly said, yeah, they're naming a something after you. feel like, oh, my God, what, what have the doctors told them? Yeah, I mean, it's particularly because the other instances of this that came to mind were, were ones after someone very famous had died. So Maradona in Naples mm. is a famous recent one, but also the, the Cruyff Arena in Amsterdam. Both of those cases, slightly different because uh, the previous names didn't have a particular resonance. So I, I spoke to James Horncastle about the, the Napoli one, James, I'm sure. You know, like St. Paul or San Paolo isn't even the patron saint of Napoli, so it didn't seem that controversial. The, the Johan Cruyff Arena was called the Amsterdam Arena, very generic. So it, it didn't, I guess in those cases, it didn't feel like anything significant was being lost, whereas... Uh, yeah, in in Brazil, I mean, admittedly, a lot of the outcry has been f- from journalists. So right. maybe there's a little bit of professional pride in it, but it's it goes beyond that. I think I can't think of another ground that is named after a, a journalist. Can can any of you? It's probably the Jack Lang Arena in Truro, I'm sure. But no, aside from that, <laughs> no. Uh, okay, then. Well, uh, is the decision final, Jack, or can pieces like yours still have an impact? Well, I don't think my piece will have an impact on Rio state politics. Unfortunately, uh, Rio is a bit bigger than Truro, but it's still pending a kind of ratification from the the acting governor. And Mm. I mean, there have been a lot of uh, columns written in Brazil on this in the last week by, uh, you know, in, in all the major newspapers. So my hope is that he will see see sense and decide to give this a swerve, but no right. real indication yet. Right, Pele doesn't need this stadium named after him to be Pele. Fair. Um, okay, very good. Duncan, you're looking pensive, but it might just be that you're thinking of all the things you want to head off and do once we wrap this totally up. Is I was just right? thinking of, of stadium names, okay. looking out the window, thinking Bruce Arena probably dominates, doesn't he, overall? So. <laughs> I thought you were going to mention the Puskas Stadium again. Yeah. Very good. So that brings us to the end then of today's Totally. As you know, we'll be back on Monday when the lineup actually features David Priest and Dion Fanning 
and Daniel Story. But for now, it's many thanks for a fabulous job, guys. And to Jack Lang, to Duncan Alexander, and to Michael Cox. And you, listener, have a great weekend. We'll speak to you soon. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletics Football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.